Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. I am your host, Simon Von Bromley, and today I am joined by Bike Radar's senior technical editor for Road, Ashley Quinlan, and James Thomas, lead bike fitter at Bicycle in Richmond, who has now fitted Ash to bicycles twice over the years with one more to follow later in the year. And today, as you may have guessed, we're here to talk about bike fitting. What is it, why you might want one, and how to go about getting one if you're interested. But first, how are we? How are you doing, James? Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, early start, but all is well. How are you doing, Ash? Very well, thanks. Yeah, yeah, just uh, yeah, looking forward, you know, down the barrel of bike of the year testing now. So everything's a bit uh, bit gung ho, but we're looking forward to it. Have you started testing yet? Uh, no, but I've got three of the bikes in my garage ready to be, for me to sort of set up and get sort of shaken down. And uh, yeah, we'll get the miles in next week onwards. Very exciting. Well, let's just jump straight into it. James, what is a bike fit? I would describe a bike fit as uh, an assessment of a rider's interaction with their bike. Uh, It's not necessarily intended to treat pain per se. It's really just understanding the relationship between the rider and the bike because you're taking, you know, a sort of soft, gooey human being that's asymmetric by nature and then lashing it to a very symmetric piece of carbon fiber or whatever it is. And compensation ensues so that's essentially what what i specialize in is understanding the interaction between the rider and the bike um rather than looking at necessarily uh body dysfunctions or what what might what not so what are the kind of things that you know when we say like a bike fit is is this in terms of things like kind of basic things such as saddle height cleat position handlebar position is 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 that the kind of thing that gets we're to- get we're Absolutely. About. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, 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 the, there are there are a number of key metrics. Obviously, saddle height in uh, saddle height, saddle setback, uh, the reach to the handlebars, and to, as well as the handlebar drop. Uh, but, but secondly, optimizing things like crank length, uh, stance width, which is a very commonly overlooked aspect of bike fitting, uh, and just understanding whether all the riders' uh, equipment is suitable for them. You know, very commonly in, in in our industry, we talk, we see people with you know, shoes three sizes too big to accommodate the width of a foot, that kind of thing. So we look at every contact point between the rider and the bicycle and understand that you know, and, and assess as to whether it's optimized for them. Well, it, it's it's not it's obviously not an exact science either. You've you've ex, you've um, <laughs> no you've uh, you've you've explained to me before now that um, well we've had we've had two fits, shall we say, and you've assessed my body twice and the bikes that i'm fitting to them now yeah there were two different bikes involved in those fits but the fits have been substantially different we've gone one in one direction say six years ago and we've come back again now um so it's a is it is it right to say that we we, we talk about you know bike fitting as, as a process as opposed to you know you turn up to a bike fit you get fitted onto your bike everything's hunky-dory off we go 
or do things change all the time? Absolutely. I, I think we, we, we definitely, you know, Phil, Phil Cavill, who's a friend of mine, who's, you know, uh, 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 has been biking for a, for a very long time and a lot longer than me has uh, has very famously quoted saying that it's uh, it's a process, not an event. Uh, smart man, uh, but very very true as well. And you know, human beings they change all the time. You're taller in the morning when you wake up than when you go to bed at night. So you're you're always having to sort of reevaluate it. Not that you need to have a bike fit every single year, but I think one thing that uh, you certainly touched on there that I find uh, is particularly problematic in the industry is that everybody revolves this around a bike, and bike fitting. Unfortunately, the 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 expression or term bike fitting is quite a misleading expression because really it's about understanding the needs and limitations of a particular cyclist or a particular individual rather than necessarily the equipment that they're using. And I think that's kind of where a lot of the confusion lies uh, with regards to bike fitting. And that's certainly something that we're trying to change at Bicycle. So is there kind of, you know, what are the kind of different types and, and, and standards of bike fitting? You know, is there, is there a kind of gold standard that, in your opinion, or like what should people be looking for? Because I know some people may have had like you know, a basic fit from a bike shop where they kind of say, well, we'll sit you on a turbo trainer and, you know, make sure the handlebars are kind of like, you know, you can reach them and here's your saddle height. But like, I know then there are also kind of retool, which people would have seen maybe motion capture tools using and things like that. What kind of thing do you think is? I, I think the key is is experience and and the the history of the fit of themselves. I think the, we, you very often hear uh, retool being thrown around and, People say to me, oh, I had a retool fit, which is a little bit like saying, well, you've had a spanner service then because it's uh, retool. There's a hint in the name. It, it is just a tool and it's quite a good tool. It's a bit labor intensive for my liking, but, uh, you know, it is just a, it's just a tool. I think the, the advice I would give to people is really the, to have to start a conversation with their fitter before they, before they book in with them rather than, because there isn't really a gold standard as, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I would also say that, Typically, as a general rule, and it's a bit harsh, but look for specialists, people who specialize in bike fitting. That's really all they do, rather than, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit more focused on the fitting than the sale of product, which is not what fitting is really all about. Uh, and certainly, fitters residing inside bike shops can have a tendency of, of being much more retail orientated. And that's because that's the way that they were trained. Uh, and I think there's there's a bit of a balance. Sometimes you need to you need to be able to change product if it's if it's wrong but at the same time you shouldn't be completely focused on just making a quick buck and and selling people loads and loads of stuff and this is something that we instill in our fitters is is to not make them it's it's not have them selling things constantly to people particularly unnecessarily that's the, the worst case scenario and how do we feel about kind of things, you know, like obviously with, with kind of retool fits, you might, they might, you know, retool might say, for example, there's a kind of like a range within which your knee extension needs to be. But like, I've, I've always wondered personally whether this is kind of backed by anything, you know, or is that just kind of like based on, in our experience, these kind of knee angles, for example, work? I, I think that uh, a lot of the science that I've been privy to uh, from bike fitting is very outdated and a lot of it comes from the sort of 1970s uh looking at knee angles and goniometry has some relevance but actually the way that we fit is really more about quality of motion rather than quantity i think the thing with retool is that it's uh done a very good job of of marketing bike fitting to the masses but the problem with it certainly from what i found is that there isn't enough 
education. Uh, there isn't enough focus on education to on the fit for the fitters. So quite often. It's all well and good having uh, a, a range of, of, of knee extension angles, which are all bits. So the way that retool works is that you have a series of infrared sensors adhered to certain landmarks, skeletal landmarks on the body, and they are then um, videoed. They're, they're picked up for, via an infrared camera, uh, which is run through an algorithm uh, at 18 frames per second. And the problem is that if those markers are adhered incorrectly on the wrong landmark, or if they simply is as simple as that they move when the rider moves, you know we're wearing lycra clothing. If the if the landmark moves, your whole measurement's thrown out. So I think there is a real danger, not just with retool, but with technology in general, of of being too reliant on it. And I think one of the I, I was I was privy to an early. Um, uh, an early kind of showing, if you will, of, of a retail system. And the the individual in question uh, show, showcasing it didn't even look at the rider once. And that sort of spoke volumes to me. Uh, that you, And this is kind of why we use... We use technology to our benefit rather than being led by it. I mean, I've found, I've had I've come to find there to be huge problems with the use of pressure mapping systems for for saddles and and you know it's it's I actually use it as a very effective marketing tool. People kind of look at us and go, oh, they use pressure mapping, so they must be able to find me the perfect saddle. I sell the same saddle to seventy five percent of my customers. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, sure. saddles are far less subjective than they're made yep. out to be. Uh, but. But I think, yeah, look at look at a, a, um, a fitter's history and experience rather than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think like you say, obviously, I don't want to kind of just have this turn into a kind of retool bashing podcast because I think, like you say, it's like it's, retool is a, is a tool, like a spanner. And so it, it's kind of... Totally. It's like, yeah, it, it, who's who's using it? What How are they using it? That's the kind of important Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. There is nothing wrong with retool. Yeah. You know, it, like I said, in, from my liking, it's a bit labor intensive. Uh, it's the same as STT, which is another uh, 3D analysis f- uh, uh, product. But uh, it's all about the fitter. And that that's that really is, is what people need to understand is it's about the experience of the fitter. And do you find that uh, sort of sp- when we're talking about uh, fitting someone to a particular sort of range of you know, expected range of where someone should be. Are we relying upon averages there, where actually we shouldn't be relying upon averages, or you know, the average person should be within this kind of range, depending on um, you know, the extension should be within this kind of range, depending on how long their femur is and their, their tibia and fibula, and actually fibula, sorry, and they should be thinking about you know, they should be thinking more about the individual in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of the the goniometry numbers, so the the, the measuring of body segments um, and angles. I was I was in a bike fitting course many many years ago now, and they were they were giving me this number, telling us to fit to this number, and I sort of tentatively raised my hand and said, "Well, where have these numbers come from?" And it was the the response was analysis of professional cyclists. So great. So so nobody that actually comes into my studio. Well, some some professional cyclists do come into my studio, but for the the, yeah. the vast majority of the people that I see are guys aged thirty five to sixty and sit at a desk all day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, well, a, a bike fit experience is obviously going to depend. You, you talked there about using pros as a reference point, and this is something we tackle every day, every day in our job, Simon. You know, when we're reviewing products, say this is a race bike and this is an aggressive aero bike, and and that's and that's great. But but most people who are actually buying, so, say, a bike, for example, will will you know. They're, they're they're not pros, and yeah, so most people don't even race. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly, and and so you know when when we're talking about 
you know, a bike fit. The, the ultimate goal is going to be different to the individual. So it might be, in my case, for example, when I came to see you, it was about managing my injury and maybe what the cause was of that. We managed to find that in about 30 seconds. He said, there it is, um, <laughs> you know, from your perspective, uh, which was absolutely fine. But, you know, someone may be coming to you with, you know, an, an issue with comfort or they, their priority might be performance um, and an element of performance, whether it's getting more power out or, you know, being more aerodynamic up to a point. I know you, you don't have your own wind tunnel, but at least you can sort of, you can approximate what something might, an yeah. impact something might have. Um, so I suppose, you know, your bike fit experience, if someone's listening to this now, will, I guess, would depend on you know, what it is they want to get out of it, right? Absolutely. I think it's important to have somebody that, you know, is lis- that, that listens to their customers and someone that has a reasonable amount of patience. Uh, I think, yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it's all, it, it can be, people, there can be a number of reasons why somebody might seek out a bike fit, but I think it's it's important to understand that comfort and performance are intrinsically linked. That if you're uncomfortable, i.e. you have knee pain or foot pain, you're going to go slower. End of story. Uh, the only exception to that statement, I guess, is, is aerodynamics, as you mentioned. Um, but yeah, I, I, I believe that everybody who anybody who spends any reasonable amount of time on a bicycle will benefit from a bike fit. Yeah. So you know, if someone's walking into, say, your studio, take us through very quickly um, the process that they might expect. I think the process, our process is very, very similar to every bike fitting process that you would typically encounter. So it starts with uh, just a very, not a brief, but a, it's usually half an hour to 45 minute conversation about what they want to get out of the session mm-hmm. um, and their history, where they've come from. Obviously, there's a lot of people who have taken up the sport very, very recently, thanks to our friend COVID. Uh, there is then a very simple, uh, physical assessment, starting with a standing evaluation. We assess the rider's feet. We measure their feet. We measure arch drop, arch height, uh, and, and also width, get an an understanding of, uh, of their feet and, and also the stability of the foot. There's then a sort of, uh, a, a brief mobility screening, looking at hamstring range, hip function, assessing for a leg length discrepancy. Again, you know, we aren't physical therapists. We're not here to diagnose things like that, but usually there are telltale signs. And when you've done it enough, you start to notice these things. And and we're very lucky to have uh, a series of fit bikes, which emulate the rider's position. So the fit bike or the jig is set up to the rider's position. We then get them pedaling. Uh, We take a series of measurements using uh, high high definition uh, video analysis and pressure mapping uh, saddle pressure mapping and we then get the rider off the bike and explain to them you know exactly what is going on and what 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 might be causing problems and it's important for us to demonstrate to the rider why they're having these problems uh, and for them to understand it rather than because I think bike fitting is thought of as a sort of a bit of a dark art and it's all smoke and mirrors and and some of it is. And driven uh, by a solution, right? Yeah. You know, it's, like, yeah oh, totally. it's fixed now. There we yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, so, you know, we, we assess where the dysfunction in inverted commas might be uh, and then seek to remove it. it. It really is as simple as that. Uh, you know, be it a saddle that's too high or a saddle that's too low or a reach that's too long or a saddle that isn't quite right or whatever it might be. There, are, there can be a million and one uh, different drivers for uh, lack of lack of performance or discomfort. You mentioned things like you know saddle too high, reach too long. You know, obviously the, the cycling, especially with road cycling, and you know, obviously it's you know it's often road cyclists who are interested in performance and getting bike fits. It, it is kind of you know this kind of professional 
or professionalization of bikes, does this lead to kind of common issues such as saddle too high, yeah, reach too long, too much drop, that sort of thing? We're all wannabe contortionists. We yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think everyone's, you know, you know, it's a, aerodynamics a very tantalizing thing, right? You know, if I think, oh, if I can ride in a more aerodynamic position, I'm going to go faster. And and it's not necessarily, as you say, it's not necessarily doesn't necessarily follow if you can't maintain that position comfortably and put out the power or whatever. But is does, is that leading to kind of common issues? Definitely. But I think there are also trends that. Are, I think that the reach thing is is a very big is, is has become a very big focus point for me because it has ramifications in the saddle and unfortunately I think a lot of people what a lot of people don't realise is that uh, professional cyclists typically don't have bike fits <laughs> and and there's a there's there's quite a lot of just ah uh, you know I'll just try that and it, it, it's all very quite. It's not really very professional, actually. I know this because I have ex-professionals working for me. I have ex-team Skyriders working for me who have given me very, very good insights as to how unprofessional professional cycling is. Yeah. There is very little rider care in professional cycling. Yeah. Uh, so, and 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 by and with bike fitting and and analysing a rider on their bike is is no exception to that. So, I think what we have to understand is that professional cyclists are completely different to the normal everyday individual. They have very little upper body mass. Uh, they've got very high pain thresholds. They're extremely flexible. And the upper body mass thing is particularly important because the more upper body mass you have, the more you have to sustain. So if, you're putting, if you've got an individual who has no upper body mass, is putting out 300 watts all day long, guess what? They can tolerate a longer lower position because they've got nothing to sustain. You then translate that, and so that's where you know a professional racing bike is fine for a pro because they're they're functionally able to absorb the dysfunction in their position. Whereas a human, a normal human being who puts out 150 to 200 watts that's and is me. carrying a few extra pounds, <laughs> I think you're yeah. doing yourself an injustice. The only person <laughs> around this table is me with that. Uh, but you know, a normal human being putting out half the power with carrying three times the mass. Guess what? They can't ride it. I think unfortunately, this is a sport where a lot of the products are not fit for purpose, in my opinion. Uh, and and does that, are we just talking about bikes or just kind of generally? Uh, um, predominantly about bikes and the shape of them and and the way in which they fit. And this is why I've, I, I built a business surrounding custom bikes because I think, not to do any anybody a disservice, but endurance bikes tend to be pretty benign. They're a bit mundane to ride. Yeah. Every, you know, a lot of people want you know something that's sprightly and agile yeah. and fun to ride, but then there's a fit argument for it. Uh, but is it too much to ask for both? I don't think so. And I think okay. certainly in this day and age, because I've been selling custom bikes for the best part of a decade now, back when I first started selling custom bikes, there was a significant uptick in cost and value for a custom bike against off the peg. Whereas now you've got the likes of the big brands, they're selling 14,000 pound off the peg bikes. Mm. Custom bike starts at seven, less, <laughs> five or six. So, do yeah. you know what I mean? So I, I think this is kind of why we've, we're focusing on that. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 
There have been brands in the past, haven't there, who have tried to kind of, you know, increase the size of head tubes, for example. I know Cervelo for a while was kind of, you know, making slightly taller head tubes on there that, you know, say S-series bikes and a lot of other brands. But then obviously, you know, <laughs> you'd see every single pro rider then with fitting a 140, 17 de- minus 17 degrees stem or whatever. And, you know, just because they say, oh, could you, I can't get low enough on this bike. But then, of course, you know, consumers see that and think, oh, you know, a, a big head tube must be must be bad. Yeah. I, I think the head tube is, I, I'm coming to find that handlebar drops less of a problem than reach. And I think this is why a lot of so riders are able to tolerate, you know, a, a much more reach than they can, sorry, much more handlebar drop than they can reach. So I, I'm finding myself gravitating towards um, bikes that have a, a shorter reach figure, so frame reach figure, uh, than, than anything else. Interesting. Well, like... When in in that case, then let's they're talking about kind of you know gravitating towards certain bikes. You know, I think one of the one of the things people often do is you know they think they kind of make a decision about a bike and they maybe like go out and buy it and then think, oh, you know, maybe I should go get a bike fit. So this bike fits me really really well. Yeah, is that the kind of right way to be doing things, or should people be getting a fit you know way before they're even thinking about what type of bike they want to get? So I, I think one of the biggest. Um flaws in the industry is that we talk about buying a bike, you buy a bike and then you go and get it fitted. And that assumes that the bike is right in the first place. It's the traditional way of doing things, right? Because you, you tie up to a bike shop, you see a bike you like, or you've seen it on, you know, whether it's on the telly or, or you've on www.bikeradar.com, the leading that, multidiscipline cycling website. That one, that one, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, when you, when you, you know, when you, when you read these reviews, you think, oh, that bike looks great. That's got a, a good rating. I like the way that looks. Uh, my friends might, might have given me some advice around it. And Bike you, Radar says it's good. Yeah, you can trust that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't ignore your friends. Uh, but you buy your bike and then you go and get it fitted to to you when you vaguely know what you think you might need in terms of fit. Maybe you go to a bike shop and you go and sort of stand over one and, and so on. But actually, you know, is that a guarantee? I mean, I, I always think of turning up to a bike shop. And again, from my point of view, not to do bike shops a disservice at all. But they maybe they're interested in selling you the bike. You'll vaguely be in the right ballpark in terms of fit. But you haven't been out and ridden that bike, and you have in the in the shape in the position that they're they're giving it to you. So you know, say, well, that's that looks. Well, about it's unlikely right. a bike shop's going to turn you away and say, well, no, this race bike's not going to fit you. No, no, <laughs> try try the bike shop down the road. We don't right? have any bikes for you. I yeah. think there are also a lot of hidden costs in in bikes these days. Mm. You know, thanks to proprietary parts, and you know, if you're looking at a top end bike from one of the big brands. It comes with a proprietary seat post, proprietary handlebar and stem, usually one piece, and they represent a massive cost to replace them to get them right. And in my opinion, most handlebars are too wide for most consumers. So uh, you, you, I, th- I, I think we miss all of these bits and pieces as well that we that, that aren't being considered uh, at, at point of purchase. Um, but. With the with the shift and the move to a more direct to consumer model that we're seeing from you know the likes of Canyon and also Specialized have recently taken this, um, I, I think all the more reason to to be to get fitted first and have a real understanding of where your limitations and needs lie, and also it stops you from it takes the guesswork out of the equation and stops you making potentially a very expensive mistake. Well, it's 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 advice that a good bike fitter, such as you know, you know, I'm going to massage your ego now, such as yourself, <laughs> uh, can offer. Right, others you know, do exist. Right, yeah, others do yeah. exist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you can you can offer that advice and say, look, this is your. You, you, we think this is your you know operating window. Mm-hmm. I know you do follow ups as well after after the initial bike fit. Then that's the that's the extra thing that I'll be doing. You know, come the summertime. But you know, to make sure that you're right and fitted properly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you can suggest bikes that have geometries and and 
fits uh, that that are natively sort of in in the ballpark to what that that person's looking for out of their ride, right? You'll ask them yeah. what kind of riding do you want to do? Yeah. Absolutely, and and we're we're seeing an increasing trend of riders wanting to certainly more senior riders who who aren't interested in racing. They they are much more interested in doing longer distance stuff, and you know again you can so as a result that that's reflected in the bikes that they're they're looking at buying. I just come in like so so it, you know if if you've already if I say I've already got my bike which I do you know I've got I've got a giant TCR I've kind of fitted myself to it because you know I've never had a bike fit and I and, and I'm a I'm a classic. We had a podcast discussion with Ash the other day where he implored people not to tinker with their bike fits too much. And I was sitting here kind of thinking, <laughs> well, that's because that's because that's that's what you I know, did and it hurt me. And I'm like, and I'm thinking like, oh, I just changed. I, you know, I fiddled with my cleat position before I went out for a ride yesterday, let alone, you know, getting on a new bike with different reach, different handlebars, a different saddle, different, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, say if I turned up to you with my giant TCR, you know, it's got a few centimeters of stack height left on the steerer, for example. You know, I've kind of like, yeah, I've 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 changed my I changed my cleat position all the time. Like, are there still is it is it too late for me? Do I need to start again, for example, or can are there are there things that you you know you can help? I mean, it's it's never too late. Uh, I think the need to the need to constantly tinker is indicative that something's not quite right. Uh, and and I think or a curious mind in the case well, of potentially. Yeah. But but I mean, yeah. It, well, it suggests that you're not quite happy with something and it's usually if 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 it's your it's usually not your cleats cleats get a bad rap and this moves sends people down the the rabbit hole of fixed cleats and all this kind of stuff when actually it's been driven by lack of arch support or correction or the the shoe's just not right you know do you know what i mean so yeah the, uh, uh, we're we're in an industry where which has become very good at, at medicating bike fit related problems so positional problems with uh, the sale of product. And again, not to name any names, but some big American <laughs> bike brands are very good at saying, oh, you get saddle problems, let's measure your sit bones and sell you this saddle. Uh, when reality is the saddle's probably just too high. And I think that's one of the problems is that is this has just become about the, 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 the constant mechanism of selling product. I think it's important when going back to bike fitters that you're, you're getting on board with somebody that, genuinely wants to do right by you generally they, they can be brand they, they they're happy to be brand agnostic i mean i own a bike shop but i'm more than happy to sell people canyons i have a very good relationship with canyon and if that's what the, if that's the bike they want and it fits them i will i'll have them deliver it to my shop i'll build it i'll pdi it and i'll send it out the door and that way they get the benefit of buying a canyon it fits and they get the bike shop experience as well i even give them a first service with it do you know what I mean? There's a cost in, in you know, there's a cost involved in that, but it's only fifty quid. So do yeah. you know what I mean? So uh, so we're trying to work with. We have a lot of we have relationships with most direct consumer brands now. Uh, you know, Fairlight, uh, Curve, Ribble, almost all of them. I've reached out to all of them with the aim of helping their customers. I'm not interested in the bike. I'm interested in the customers and helping people get onto bikes that actually work for them and having not people not, not make mistakes that countless people do it's all about education at the end of the day yeah and but but to bring it well i say not but but to bring it back to you know adjusting and tinkering and changing one element of of a bike fit you know i i i would assume and from my experience with you i would assume that you change one thing it changes the angles elsewhere and your interaction yeah. with other elements of of that fit even if you're changing only one element yeah. Now, now, while we while we Simon bash, uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, when I, you know, it's it, you, 
for example, if you were to move your cleats, your foot position would be relatively on the pedal would be different. Your your pedal stroke changes slightly. The efficiency of that may change for better or for worse. But then, you know, arguably then the chances are your interaction with the saddle will change, right? And you you spoke, and I, I talk about saddle interaction as being really important because you impressed upon me how your thinking had changed over the over the years when we had our recent fit. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, 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 you know, we, we don't, I don't have a setback, set, setback seat posts as, you know, from my experience that tend to be sort of the, you know, even Canyon do this as a, as a standard spec. They, they give you for the S for the ultimate SL and SLX, a, a seat post with a, I think a 10 mils um, setback on it. Um, and that's kind of then automatically positioned as the, as the seat post of choice, um, and you know the the range of position you can get with your saddle for the, you know the masses the, or the pe- pe- people who aren't necessarily racers, whereas the CFR version of that bike gets an inline post. Um, so you'd think, well, okay, well that's going to be for racers then, and that's the danger is you can sort of default to these things because the way so maybe brands pitch bikes and spec bikes off the peg, or you know, t- you know in Canyon's case, and you know I w- I wonder whether. You know, I, I wonder whether you know maybe it, when we go into bike fitting, it should be sort of a more open, sort of open conversation about what you know the needs of the rider, right? I, I agree. I completely agree. I think I think bike fitters need to be better, and the, there needs to be stronger education, and people need to ha- they need to want to help people, uh, which is like I say, it's certainly what I try and instill in in the, everybody fitting the bicycle. Yeah, but I think being brand, I think I think people are probably afraid of being sold to as well with, with in bike fitting, uh, being sold products that they don't necessarily need or want or that kind of thing. But if, again, that's that's a problem with a, a historical problem with bike fitting in that mm-hmm. it has been used as a mechanism for selling products. I know this because I've been in these sale in these in these meetings of from big American bike brands saying, if you do bike fitting, you will make more money. They're telling, they're telling bike shops this. If you if you do bike fitting, you'll make more money, you'll sell more stuff, you'll sell more more saddles and shoes and footbeds and all of this kind of stuff. It's a it's a it's a sales mechanism. But that's not what bike fitting should be about. It should be about helping people. Uh I mean yes, we're all in the business of 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 making money here, but at the end of the day, it really should be about helping people. Let's talk a little bit about kind of general recommendations for things then, because I, like you mentioned earlier how, you know, you kind of felt you feel that, uh, say, saddle choices is sort of less subjective than it's kind of commonly made out to be. And, you know, I, I've kind of, you know, in the past felt like that as well. But then obviously I'm, I'm only one person and I've had conversations with, you know, especially my, like editors who have said like, you know, you can't talk for everyone because you're only really doing your own experience. But it's interesting to hear to hear you say that, and especially like in the kind of modern era where things like, you know, short saddles with cutouts are becoming kind of increasingly popular. You know, I, I, in my kind of, you know, many years riding bikes have gone from riding saddles like a kind of physique Ari one, you know, decade ago or whatever, because that was what the pros rode. And then I've moved from like, you know, specialized Roman into more now, like, you know, I ride basically, I like, I'm pretty happy with any kind of short saddle with a cutout. Yeah. But like, I wonder how, what kind of, you know, do you have kind of general recommendations for a saddle shape? And and if so, what is that based on? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, did you know the Physique Ariane was designed by Gilberto Simone on a serviette? <laughs> I didn't know That's that. That's how much science. <laughs> so, but, 
you know, and I rode an Ariane for almost a decade. Yeah, it was you know, super popular. Didn't, didn't it was really the saddle to have, yeah, have right? Exactly, it right. was. Ten it, years it, ago, it, everyone it, had one. Yeah, bellissimo. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah. It's very long. I think if you... Know? you that, was, that, was, <laughs> that, that was supposed to be good. But, uh, you know, if you, if you consider how we're primarily intended, depending on your religious beliefs, we're intended to run, jump, and climb trees, at no point in our evolution were we intended to sit on our genitals on hard pieces of foam. <laughs> and... Uh, so, I mean, to answer your question, I, I, I get fantastic results with the Salitalia SLR Boost, um, particularly the narrow one. And I, I think that there are, this is my opinion, so please don't take it as gospel, but I think the measuring of sit bones, in, in my opinion, is a means of making the sale of saddles feel a little bit more sciencey. Please forgive my cynicism here, but I find that by carrying this out, by carrying out this measurement, quite often results in a saddle that's too wide. And what people aren't considering is the, the the thighs movement past the wings of the saddle. And this is one of the things that I've started to find in that saddles that are excessively wide tend to result in a gravitation to the nose. Now, with a noseless saddle, that's pretty problematic because you're ending up on an area of the saddle that is very, very narrow. Yeah, and it's just not designed to support the rider. Exactly. So this Salitalia saddle, I get really, really great results with. Uh, but exactly. Can, can you just describe it for us? What kind of saddle is it? it? It's it's actually sort of in between uh, your your traditional short fit, like a prologue dimension or the specialized power. It's a little bit longer than that in the nose, but it, it, it's quite a lot narrower. It's 128 millimeters wide, and it also doesn't flare out at the same rate. So when I talk, when I say flare, I'm talking about the rate at which the nose gets wider towards the back of the saddle, towards the wings. And in particularly those two other saddles that I just mentioned, the Prologa Dimension and the, the Specialized Power, they get very, very wide very, very quickly. And seemingly, having ridden both of them and experienced it myself firsthand, it, it does result in this need and this need and gravitation to the nose of the saddle. And that that causes a lot of problems for people. It puts a load of weight onto the hands. It typically causes genital issues. Usually there'll be a list to one side. Q, foot problems and knee problems in that side. Do you see what I mean? So the, the saddle has the, the, the capability to move problems to all other aspects of the bike. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the Boost S3 is, is a great product. I, I sell a lot of them. Uh, but it's not for absolutely everybody. That's why I said 75% of people. But uh, seriously, it's, it is a, a, a very large proportion of people that I sell them to. And you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, bikes are increasingly coming with, with things like expensive proprietary integrated components, whether it be seat posts, you know, not every, as, as Ash touched on, you know, like personally, I, you know, again, like you know, I used to think that having quite a lot of saddles set back was quite a good idea. But, over, you know, currently, you know, whether this is a good idea or not, I've gravitated more forward, you know, partly because I, you know, ride a time trial bike and I, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, the similar, there's a more kind of forward seat angle, you can get a bit more air than blah, 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 blah. Um, but with handlebars, for example, yeah, like you might not get any adjustability baked into a bike. Uh, and you know, certain brands have, you know, Canyon, for example, have their adjustable handlebars. But, Hallelujah! <laughs> but a lot of brands, for example, you just get what you're given, right? And if swapping yeah. it out might be very expensive, either for the shop or for you. But you know, is is that really a problem? Or you know, how how much does that kind of lack of adjustability matter to the average consumer? I think it. I think it matters a great deal. Uh, unfortunately, I think with things like crank length, uh, which obviously you can't adjust easily, handlebar width on a proprietary system can't be adjusted easily. Even things like saddle selection and seat post selection 
also can't be adjusted easily. I think the at the end of the day, when you're buying an off-the-peg bike, that's what you're getting. You are buying an off-the-peg bike, and there's a cost associated with that. Well, actually, not usually. Um, but I, I think it, it kind of goes back to why you need to have a fit first to understand whether these things are really going to make a difference. If you've got someone who's got impinged hips and whose average height and they need a 160-millimeter crank... 172 just isn't going to cut it in you know on any planet in this solar system. So uh, I think this it, it, the, I think the bike industry is never really going to change because you know we make and sell far more 172 and a half mil cranks and 42 centimeter handlebars than we do the other variations. It's getting better, you know. Thank you Shimano and SRAM for moving to 160 millimeter cranks, but. Uh, Unfortunately, I think, especially as, as we see this proprietary, this move and this shift towards proprietary, thing, I think it's just probably going to get worse, unfortunately, uh, because the cost of, of having to change these parts is just so astronomical. Let's talk about like crank length a little bit as well, because I think that's kind of like a subject that a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. overlook, right? You know, a lot of people, they just don't think about it. Every 56 centimeter bike that we get into test, they all come with 172.5 cranks, like literally... Every single one. Yeah, now, last year I wrote a kind of you know, very long feature. Talked to a talked to Phil Burt, um, former GB bike fitter. You know, he recommended shorter shorter cranks. Talked to Shimano. They said 170 to 175. That's just the range. That's what they make. You know, that's the range, right? Like so, obviously, yeah. but like but like you said, you know, both they both they and SRAM have recently they their range has kind of gotten shorter overall. They used to offer up to like 180, but I think they now offer up to maybe you know, 175, and then they do some slightly shorter sizes. But generally, it's hard to find anything below kind of 165. Yeah. But is is that a problem? Yeah. I, I think that there's a, there's a bit, there's a lot of talk about reducing crank length and crank length reduction being a good thing. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, but I sell my fair share of 177.5s and 180s to very, very tall people. And I think the, the talk about crank length reduction, as a lot of it's come about, but has seemingly hasn't been tested out in the real world, and there haven't been there hasn't been much consideration as to how it impacts the bike uh, in terms of how the bike r- actually rides. I found going very very short on cranks for an average side rider. When I say very very short, I'm talking less than 165 millimeters for someone who's five foot ten. It can have the effect of of throwing the rider's weight into the front of the bike, which is not which is problematic. Mm. However, there may be biomechanical uh, limitations that outweigh that, i.e. an impinged hip. I think that the problem is that there isn't enough range full stop at both ends of the spectrum. So ultimately, if you are taller than six foot two or shorter than five foot five, you're stuffed in the bike industry. <laughs> you don't have a bike. You don't have much choice in terms of bike size. You don't have much choice in terms of crank length or stance width or anything like this. Uh, I mean, I I import and had to take the financial risk of importing over 132 and 34 centimeter handlebars that I'm now sat on because guess what? Nobody makes them. So I imported a load of them from Taiwan so that my petite customers, male or female, could get the right handlebar with. Why aren't we? Specialized used to make a 34 centimeter handlebar. Now they stop making it. Why? It, I, I understand why, because they just don't make enough of them. They, they don't sell enough of them. Yeah. But the, it kind of goes hand in hand with a lack of education and you know, a lack of story. There are obviously a lot more women cycling now than there used to be. But again, that's to assume that all, that all people buying 34 centimeter handlebars are women, and they're not. The problem is the amount of is the amount of range. Uh, 
And you're right. I mean, Shimano, like I said, and SRAM have recently started making 160 millimeter cranks. Campagnolo, forget it. If it's if it's less than 170 or bigger than 175, then they're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the you know we're see, seeing more customization in you know in bike brands, and we're also seeing uh, you know some 3D printed technology in and around there, sort of coming in. It's a favorite sort of topic of ours to sort of dip into from time to time. But but you know being able to build these. So, uh, you know, different sizes to suit the individual. That's becoming more and more of reality, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. But I think as as more people get into cycling, uh, I, I think something I was thinking about on my way up here that you know the, the cycling industry hasn't changed. It hasn't. It, it hasn't really changed in the twenty five years that I've been in it. But the people who have the people who are who it's serving have changed dramatically. You know, the, the spectrum of... When when I started in this game, people buying road bikes were diehard racers. And, you know, there were guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they rode fixed gear in the winter, and you, you know what I mean? They, yeah, they the, only, the only road road, road bikes. cyclists. Yeah. Exactly. Did, did, they, did their Wednesday 10-mile you know, yeah. TT not in the summer. Out, not an ounce of fat on them. You know, they're all sinewy. and like, and uh, Whereas now, the spectrum of people yeah. that I see coming through my door is vast. It's truly vast. Uh, you know, I have people with a contraplasia come to see me, people with one arm, people who can't extend their knee beyond 30 degrees. You know, it, so, the, and the, the equipment needs to change with that, with that, the needs and limitations of these people. Uh, like I say, it just we just need more variety. Let's talk a little bit about um, pedal systems because this is a kind of, a, you know, a kind of thorny, a thorny subject, right? You know, I think, you know, for a lot of people, yeah, I think I imagine a lot of people just kind of like you know they start off with a pair of Shimano SPDSL pedals and nice. cleats, and but then you know they kind of you know, cleat position. You know, you Google online cleat position. It's very much kind of knee over pedal spindle is a kind of good ballpark. You know, make sure your foot's kind of vaguely straight on the pedal. But like, yeah, you know, you kind of mentioned you feel that you know SPDSL is, is the best there. Like, what are the kind of advantages and you know potential disadvantages when it comes to choosing a pedal system and you know setting up cleats? That's a very broad question. I yeah. appreciate that. I, I could probably start start you with one one pitfall to avoid is to stick you know religiously to the one that you started cycling with just because that's what you've been on previously. I mean, I, I think the function of them is all relatively similar, though, isn't it? If you look at time versus look versus SPDSL from Shimano. The only outlier really being speed play, but I'll get onto that in a minute. I think with with Shimano, uh, I I prefer it because it's the it's the most stable, it's the most durable, it's the cheapest, it's the easiest to find. The the cleat's twenty quid. It, it comes in a variety of well, it comes in a choice of axle lengths. My best selling pedal system at a ratio of a hundred to one is an SPDSLE, which many people don't even know exists. It's a four millimeter extension and actually is very, very common now in, profession, in the professional world. Mm -hmm. So, and if you consider that, again, sorry to go off on a tangent here, but if you consider that over the last 30 years, bicycles have become increasingly narrower to enable 20 year old 60 kilo athletes to pedal through corners, because mm -hmm. the closer that you have the pedals together, the more clearance you have for pedaling through corners. Remember the triple chain set? You might not. I but, do. I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually do. have one. I, had, yeah. I actually I had, have right. one on my commuter bike. And and I don't really so like it. So one of the reasons we got away up. with triple chain sets was to was to reduce the Q factor and reduce the yeah. stars for, to improve pedaling. We find that with not necessarily larger or uh, larger riders, but people who are taller, in in certain physiological traits, require a, a dramatic increase in starts to mitigate that. So this is why. I really like the the SPDSL system. Um, it's more durable than look. Uh, the time system 
uh, doesn't have a great deal of adjustment to it in from a, from a cleat standpoint, and you can't you can't really adjust the, the stance as far as I can remember. I'll be honest, I haven't worked on a time pedal for a very long time. <laughs> the vast majority of pedals that I see are either look Shimano yeah. or, or Speedplay, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh, not to call them out. No, no, but but with that in mind, if if someone is you know gets on well and is used to, I mean, I come to you. I've I I personally use Look Keo yeah. Keo pedals, and I'm very happy with them, and I find yeah. them, I find them easier to use than SPD SLs. So uh, aside from just yeah, you know, the fit, I find them easier to get in and out of when I'm commuting or when I'm riding, and I find therefore. A, a greater pleasure to use and I don't seem to have any issues in that area so it's not a simple case I, I guess it's not a simple case of saying well one is better from a bike fit perspective so that's it it's, yeah agreed. You know, there, there are there are other things to take into account here as well right absolutely I think uh, I think they all have a, 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 a range of, of cleats and float and all this kind of stuff so I, I think I typically recommend like the look system for Typically lighter riders because the spring tension, the release tension on them is, is a little bit lighter, uh, so it can be a little bit easier for particularly smaller people to get in and out of. Uh, you're not very small though, are you, Ashley? I, I'm not, but I do. Use, I do use the stronger ones. So, yeah, yeah. Ash has plates. a very delicate touch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I do. laughs> but yeah, like I say, my my favourite's the, the Shimano, uh, just for from a durability standpoint. Mm. Yeah, I think I would kind of you know not that I'm an expert in any way, but I would kind of echo that. Like I was a long time Shimano SPDSL user, and I switched over to Look Kio a couple of years ago just because that was what every power meter pedal yeah. was in, and yeah. and I needed to test them, so I just switched all my shoes across. It's not really. I don't really see any major disadvantages the cleats are a little bit less adjustable they have a little bit less range because they're smaller mm. and the, the float if you're buying kind of non-look cleats the float isn't as reliable <laughs> yeah but you know it, uh, that you know non-look cleats that's not really the fault of look <laughs> no so i can't really blame them for that like before we move on though you did say you're going to get onto onto uh, speedplay you said you would come on to Speedplay later, so I'm calling you out on that <laughs> oh, now. Let's get on I thought to I was going to get away with that. <laughs> uh, give us 60 seconds. Speedplay, go. I, I think the thing with Speedplay is that it, it, it has, since the, the Wahoo acquisition, a lot of the benefits of the Speedplay system, i.e. the stance adjustment, the multiple different spindle length uh, options, as well as things like four-aft extender plates, have gone away. Um, furthermore, the durability seems to have gone downhill. But I think one of our biggest complaints with the Speedplay system is that the C-spring that retains the cleat to the pedal wears out a lot faster than you think it does. We reckon 1,000 to maybe 1,500 miles, which means that they develop rock very quickly. And furthermore, a cleat is 75 quid. Really? Uh, and I should say that is for those who don't know, that's because they're kind of basically the, all of the kind of mechanics of yes. the pedal system are in the cleat, in right? The cleat. So the pedal is just like a kind of little, little like dumb lollipop, and the cleat is where the kind of release mechanism and all the technology is kind of happening. Isn't but it? also, it is the only wearing component. Yeah. In the same way that a twenty-pound cleat is for for a Shimano pedal. Uh, so I, I I feel that this uh, I mean this very often touted as being a bike fitter's dream due to the amount of adjustability that can be adjusted. So with a speed play, you can uh, dial in exactly where the float lies. I feel that that is something that you don't really need, provided the stance is correct, the saddle height's correct, all of that kind of stuff. I think it's it's a system that has pandered to poor positions and has uh, developed a an incorrect 
reputation for curing knee pain, we actually find the opposite in bigger riders. It can it can cure, it can cause knee pain. But you know that's like you know that's in specific s- circumstances. It's not uh, it's not it's not speed play gives you knee pain. But no pedal system cause, uh, causes nor Cancel, cures yes. knee, knee pain. Sure. What about what about shoes then? Are there kind of um, you know shoes come in all shapes and sizes? You know I have. <laughs> accumulated many many pairs of shoes you know they all have this part of the reason i'm constantly tinkering with my cleat position and saddle height and things like that is because i've got millions of pairs of shoes they've all got the if you know even if the kind of bolts are in the same position from left to right shoe that would be that would be a good start but they've all got different stack heights you know yeah. they all have you know so i've got a pair of nimble shoes that have the the free bolt holes very far forward compared to say like you know a pair of bond shoes specialized come with adjustable cleat bolt holes you know it's are a there kind of yeah? It's a minefield, right? So, are there kind of general recommendations? Yeah, maybe there aren't, but are there any general recommendations you could give to people when kind of shopping for a cycling shoe? I'd, I'd really like to say, I'd really like to tell people to go to somewhere that specialises in shoes, but they, they don't, don't exist. Really exist. Apart from yeah. my shop, I've got seven hundred <laughs> pairs of shoes in my shop, right? Because it meet, from thirty six to fifty, including half sizes in standard and wide fit. But depending on which model, so whenever somebody walks into my shop, they can leave with a pair of shoes. They're usually Lake. They're usually made by the Lake brand because Lake's range uh, encompasses a vast array of different foot shapes. But I think the, the the biggest pitfalls with shoe fit in general are sizing up to accommodate the width of the foot. Because if you've got wide feet, buy a wide fitting shoe. If you buy a narrow fitting shoe, three sizes bigger, the cleat location ends up even further forward. Uh, I think I, t- I tend to encourage carbon fiber soles. I think there is a difference in stack height between something like a Bont and a Specialized. It's it's a very small amount and actually shouldn't really be your, your main consideration. But when comparing it to a basic plastic soled shoe, you're not going to be impeding the hip through the top of the stroke so much with a, uh, with a carbon shoe as you are with a plastic soled shoe. So a, a carbon shoe is biomechanically a little bit better or can be a little bit better and offers more support and stabilizes the foot. You've got to think that where the foot is the single or the shoe is the single most important part of your equipment. It's where all the power goes or doesn't. <laughs> in my case, yes. The, let's just say the power. Yeah. You know, whatever you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's where all the power just dissolves. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I also think that the the cleat location thing is, is really archaic. I, I, you know, even... Even I, I've been pleading. I've got a very good relationship with Lake. The owner's a very good friend of mine, um, and I've been pleading with them for years to to run the cleat location further back. And their cleat location is great. You know, as as they're, they're they're further back than many. I still find myself taking cleats as far back on the shoe as they'll go. You more did that or less. to mine. Yep. You did that much to mine. They're still set as far back as they can be. Yeah. But but this is a this is a hangover from the 1970s where we used to you know use toe straps and and sure. cages. And the, if you if you align the centre of your cleat, which is also the pedal spindle, with the ball of the foot, I mean, 1975 called it once. It's cleat location <laughs> back. We've gone so we've come so much further than that in terms of shoe design and 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 the materials that are used. And furthermore, if I mean, if you do that, if you align the centre of the cleat with the ball of your foot, you're going to get foot problems and knee problems and probably saddle issues too. So it's a very, you know, it's a very old hat traditional uh, way of setting cleats up uh but i do think i do think shoes are are, are unfortunately sort of set in their ways a little bit in that respect uh because it's the way that it's always been done and no one's calling them out 
And well, shoes are also quite customizable as well to a point, right? Mm. So you, we, I use some custom insoles and have done since 2016. Yeah. We didn't change very much of that the last time I, I visited you, uh, which was great. <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. Um, I know you added a little bit of extra, sort of a little bit more of it is, is the right term, a shim just underneath yeah. my heel, yep. just to bring just to bring the contact up a little bit more. Yep. But you know, insoles like that can customize a shoe a little bit. So if you've got a specific shoe right now. You know, it isn't necessarily that shoe can't do a job for you. It's just yeah, you can you can modify it. Now it's lovely if you could you know get the perfect shoe for you right out the box, but the chances of you finding that are slim to none, I would suspect. I think the thing the thing with shoe fit is it's massively influenced by what's inside of the shoe, and most shoes don't come with any amount of arch support. Yeah. Everybody needs arch support in their cycling shoes. So if you consider, and this says more about the the professionalism of bike shops. If you if you ski with any level of regularity, you're considered a moron if you don't have arch support in your ski boots. Yeah. Yet here we have legions of cyclists riding around with no arch support in the, in the cycling shoes in their ski boots, um, <laughs> and and the, the mechanism is essentially, is essentially the same. So you know everybody needs arch support in the shoe. And one of the things that we find with our shoe fitting service is that you you have to administer arch support at the same time as selling the shoe. Because as the, as the rider stands up or as they start to load the pedal, the foot pronates, the arch collapses, and the foot grows. So what that leads to in a bike shop scenario very often is to just simply go up a size. So then you end up with a foot that's swimming around the side of the shoe. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So you, you ha it has to kind of all be done at at once, which I know is very, very difficult for the listeners. Yeah, but yeah. you you go. You've only got to do it right once, mm. and once you've done it, you then don't have to be playing with your cleats every three minutes. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll speak from experience here, and just from what I've I've had. You know, when we had my, the the original uh, the G eight. What's the brand called for the insoles? I've got. Oh, you just, ride G eight, do you? I've got okay. G eight. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, but but I had I had those fitted to my. I had Physic R fives, I think, or R four Bs. I can't remember quite off the top of my head now. Uh, but anyway, they went. They they died. They were they were too old. I changed them for another test set. I, I was brilliant. Brilliant. Had some Sidi uh, uh, wire twos or shot shots um, and. Fit, managed to get those insoles into that shoe, mm. um, and and that was great. But of course, it's an entirely different shoe with an entirely different fit. Yeah. Even though on actually it was half a size up, but it was still because it was city, it still came up a little bit smaller. Um, and so I've got lasting uh, toe crush injuries on on my right foot mm. now because of that. And I just kept going and going and going at it. Um, I'm. Uh, Sorry, listeners. I'm pretty sure my toenails won't grow back exactly as they should. Sorry, everyone. Um, but He's not taking his shoe off the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm yeah. Not, stop, I'm it. Not. stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> yes. Moving on. It's but you know you can really have you know lasting issues if you don't get that right from the beginning. So it's, as you say, it's really important. But I can say from personal experience, aside from you know bike fitting, but actually having the right shoes for the right job and and ensuring that you're not causing yourself lasting issues is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think we have covered a lot of ground there, so probably about time to wrap it up. Thank you very much, James, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pleasure mine. Thank you very much, Ashley, as usual. Yeah. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to our Bike Radar podcast if you haven't already, and please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, as that helps us reach more people like you. If you have any questions or comments about what we've discussed today, you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com or leave a comment on BiteRadar.com in the article where this is published. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everyone.
Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 